when we start taking responsibility for our side of the street, when we start cleaning up our behavior, that's when the balance changes. That's when the possibility for the relationship shifting happens. We can project not just insecurity, but we can project our personal traumas, fears, and pains, unresolved issues, limiting beliefs from our childhood. Welcome to another episode of Rich in Relationship. And the topic today is who's to blame? Finding the source of marital ambivalence. Last episode, we talked all about ambivalence just in general. We were sort of covering what is ambivalence about? What are the possible consequences of ambivalence? Why is it that we need to pay attention? And what could be some positives about it? Today, we're going to do a deep dive into ambivalence itself. And what is the source? Is it you? Is it them? Is it something outside of you? So ambivalence occurs in marriage primarily when we have fear, hurt, and sometimes sadness, right? So we're experiencing doubts and fears and concerns about our marriage. It's uh, from that point of view, our ambivalence as a personal experience within ourselves is on us. If we were walking in confidence and faith and feeling secure in ourselves, we wouldn't be experiencing ambivalence. We'd be clear about what the next course of action was to be, whether it's going to be deepening the marriage or withdrawing ourselves from it. But when we're ambivalent, when we're going through, should I stay or should I go? That's usually because we're feeling unsure or insecure in ourselves. We are lacking in self-trust. And What happens when we're having these personal insecurities and self-doubts is we start to project our fears and concerns onto the relationship. I have countless clients who come to me, premarital clients who come to me because their partner is concerned that they are being unfaithful to them. They love and adore their partner. They're absolutely faithful to them, but it's not an unusual complaint, particularly for men, to be concerned that the woman that they're engaged to or dating has interest in other men that is beyond just friendship. In fact, they'd prefer that they just didn't have friendship. And my take on this is that very often these guys uh, have roving eyes and they're projecting their own psyche onto their female partner. And the mistake in this, if you're a guy, for example, is that men tend to have more of a roving eye, number one. Number two, men tend to be struck with the idea that they should have many partners in life. And women really, as a rule, tend to be looking for the one that they can settle down with and lead a life with. And so what happens to these guys is they are in this committed relationship. They're looking around, they're having attractions, and then they're assuming that she must be too, or they're projecting what's going on with them onto their partners. Now, sometimes their partners really do have a roving eye. Sometimes they really do have interest in more than one guy. Sometimes that's true. But for the most part, it's this, the men are being driven by this insecurity and they're projecting it onto their future partner. We can project not just insecurity, but we can project our personal traumas, fears, and pains, unresolved issues, limiting beliefs from our childhood. In fact, I would argue that we all do, that we pick the partners that we pick partially to help us 
identify and air out and release these traumas and limiting beliefs. For example, uh, I have a client who had a very critical parent and was convinced that her partner was always criticizing her. And when they got down to brass tacks and worked on it, um, she finally admitted and aired out the fact that she'd grown up in a very critical environment. And they started to, he first started to be very careful about what she, he said and how he said it to her uh, so that it would be clearer about whether he was being critical or not. And she became more sensitive to whether it was her reaction or actual criticism on his part. Um, and there was further work that she went on and did release work that helped her to let go of that trauma and belief from her childhood, right? So point being, we've all got stuff from when we were kids. We all have, a better way to put it is we all have strategies that we developed in our family of origin that worked in our family of origin, ways of defending ourselves, ways of protecting ourselves, that we have picked a partner who is going to help us to let go of that strategy because it ain't working anymore. At this point, you got to be wondering, well, God, you know, Rich is either working with a lot of screwy people or he's right. And the only way for you to measure, <laughs> it could be both, by the way, uh, measure whether this is true, for, is for you to start looking at yourself, start looking at your own reaction, start looking at the times when your partner says one thing and you hear them saying another and they say, that's not what I said. You say, yes, you did. You know, just notice for those discordant moments when you seem to be not understanding each other, right? The most surefire indication of projection of pain or projection of insecurity is when people just are missing each other. They're just not hearing each other. They're not understanding one another. And if that's going on consistently, then there's probably a pain, fear, sadness, hurt from your past that's getting in the way, that's acting like a filter and causing you to have difficulty to hear what your partner is really saying. This is a huge source of ambivalence in relationships because what happens when we come up against these things is we don't like to let go of the patterns and the strategies that worked for us in our childhood. Why? Because they worked for us and we're afraid if we let go of them that we'll be vulnerable again vulnerable in a negative way. But what's actually happening is we've entered into a partnership. There's a level of safety and intimacy that we're looking to create in this partnership. The idea is that we want to be vulnerable. And so to some extent, the ambivalence is being driven by our own fear of what will happen when we let go of an old strategy, behavior, or belief that's no longer really effective in our current relationship. So let's say you've got this going on. And you notice that you're really misunderstanding each other and not hearing each other. You might want to sit down and just start writing down uh, what are the misunderstandings about? What is she, he saying? What are you saying? What is he, she hearing? What are you hearing? And you're going to start to notice patterns in the things that you miss each other on. And identifying these patterns is the first step in being ready to release them. Let's remember that there are four steps to change, four basic steps. And the first is what? You identify limiting beliefs and old emotions that are getting in the way of your life today. And the second, identify and release. 
And the second is that you create a strategy after you've released them because those beliefs and emotions will influence any strategy you make while they're lodged in you. Once you release them, you can create a new goal and a new strategy. Three, you take action. And four, you adjust your plan as you move along. All right, so what if you've got a real relationship issue? What is a real relationship issue? I wonder if a real relationship issue is that one or both persons are stuck in the past, right? I mean, let's talk about, um, I work with a lot of people who are divorcing a toxic spouse. What makes that spouse toxic? Well, what makes them toxic is they've got, guess what? Strategies and emotions that are keeping them from functioning in a way that's positive and contributes to their partner. What makes them toxic is those old emotions and strategies are making them very angry or very manipulative or very self-centered. Uh, what makes them toxic is that they're often talking about the well-being of others, but the context of that well-being is really their own, not the other person's. So they'll say, I think what's best for the children is this, but what they really mean is what's best for the children if I want to live the way that I want to live is this. That is usually grounded in unresolved emotion and limiting beliefs from the past. Can you change them? Not directly. Can you help them? Only if they want it. And the only way to indirectly change them is to work on yourself, all right? To take some responsibility for your reactions. What is it about your reaction that's toxic, if any? What is it about your reaction that's not working? What do you need to do to feel safe in the face of their toxicity? What kind of environment do you need to create for yourself? And the answers may range from, I need to create a room that I can go to where he, she cannot follow, to I need to move out and start my life alone. I mean, it really is up to you. And once you start to shift and change the way you interact with them, they will shift and change the way they interact with you. Will they release emotions just because you have? There's no guarantee. When one person in an equation lets go of old emotions and beliefs, and they start to lighten up emotionally and change the way they interact with others, it impacts everyone around them. And it impacts the way the people around them talk to them. It impacts the way the people around with them interact with them. And those people will shift to some extent. The only way that they will actually change themselves by following the same course of action is if they are inspired by that person's change. So if you're engaged with a toxic spouse and you decide to live separately from them and go through all these personal changes, the other person is a lot less likely to be inspired because they don't see you as being integral in their life. If you're hoping to inspire change in another person, it needs to be while you're living with them, if they're your partner, uh, or if they're a friend, then you may have a different kind of relationship that inspires that. But the point is, in a partnership relationship, unless you're actually in the partnership, you're not going to have a lot of influence, right? And sometimes when we're in a relationship, and I totally bless this with a toxic spouse, we need to back out of it. What if the toxicity is ours? Well, the toxicity is always, we always have our own toxicity. Even when we're defending ourselves, we have our own toxicity. Uh, toxicity is any thought, feeling, or behavior 
that is diminutive of another human being. I'm going to repeat that again. Toxicity is any thought, feeling, or behavior that is diminutive of another being. And it is up to us to manage our own toxic emotions. And we all have them. We all go there. It's part of our training as human beings. We can't really do that alone. We can to some extent, but inevitably there's going to be some reliance on a higher power, reliance on friends and family, reliance on coaches and therapists, reliance on pastors, priests, rabbis. There's going to be a reliance on others to help us with that shift and change. We, part of it is that we need accountability from other people to really change. Part of it is that other people have tools and experiences that they can share with us that'll help us. But the point is that we need to be accountable. We need to be accountable to ourselves and to others in order to change. And when we do that, when we start taking responsibility for our side of the street, when we start cleaning up our behavior, that's when the balance changes. That's when the possibility for the relationship shifting happens. Now, there is no guarantee. When we start to make these changes, the only thing that we're guaranteed is that we're going to feel better. The only thing that we're guaranteed is that we're going to stop blaming and become more supportive and speak more confidence and faith in the others, into others. The only guarantee that we have is that we're going to start focusing more on the greater good and less on ourselves. Sorry, folks. But let me tell you, the harvest from that path, the personal harvest from that path is worth it, no matter what the consequences are in our partnership. And whatever happens with the partnership, it is going to improve no matter what if we are in a better place. Improving might mean that you stop talking to each other. Improving might mean that you have a healthier dialogue, whether you're married or divorced. Where we're going to go with this as we grow ourselves, as we start cleaning up our side of the street, as we start handling what's called negative emotions in a way that is positive, is we're going to become more in touch with who we are, more in touch with our positive emotions. And let me just take a second to talk about that. I've talked about this on the, on the show numerous times, but let me just hit it one more time. As human beings, sadly, <laughs> the base, our emotional base, always present is a part of us that is vulnerable uh, and experiences hurt, sadness, and fear. Right? That's always present. Our ability to connect with other people and empathy comes from this base. When we're in touch with our own propensity, for hurt, sadness, and fear, we become in touch with other people's propensity for hurt, sadness, and fear, and we experience connection with them. And when we experience connection with them, we can move through higher feelings. We can start to build care, trust, empathy, love, right? But if we cut off our ability to have hurt, sadness, and fear, our ability to be vulnerable in essence, then we cut off the possibility of trust, empathy, love, and connection, right? They, they go together. And so as we open up our ability to be more vulnerable and we decide that we're going to communicate in a way that's caring with our partner, we open up the opportunity for them to be vulnerable and to communicate in a caring way. And caring communication is how trust is built. 
right? When we communicate with care, care meaning always considerate of the other person's feelings and concerns. When we communicate in a caring, courteous, kind, respectful, empathetic, compassionate way, we build trust. When we communicate in a caring, kind, and empathetic way, we build connection and empathy. And when we have caring communication, trust, and empathy, we open the door for intimacy. And it sort of begs the question, so what do we do with those negative emotions? Fear, anger. Anger is sort of a, an activating feeling on top of those. Fear, hurt, and sadness, and anger. How do we communicate them in a way that isn't threatening to the other person? The most recognized tool for that is I statements. I'll give you the formula. It's I feel X feeling when Y happens because of Z. And Z is always something within me. It's not something outside of me. So it goes like this. I feel sad when people jaywalk because my friend was run over by a car jaywalking, right? That would be a simple example. And then the follow-up might be, could we talk about this, right? That's a way to express our feelings. Or it might be, I feel angry when you speak to me in a way that's angry in front of other people because it reminds me of how I was humiliated as a child when my parents were angry. Right. That would be a responsible way of expressing anger instead of going, when you do that, you make me so mad. Are you getting that? Another tool that's really helpful for cultivating a healthy dialogue is active listening. And active listening is where we're listening for a fact and a feeling. So if I were listening with a, for a fact and a feeling from that last thing I said, I would say, it sounds like, or I think what you're saying is, or I'm not sure, but it. I think maybe what you're saying is something that indicates, some opening sentence that indicates we're trying to legitimize our perception. It sounds like what you're saying is that you get angry when people jaywalk because you had this really horrendous experience as a child. And they'll either go, got it. Or they'll go, no, and explain it again, right? That's basic, basic active listening. And we can give you we have a lot of tools that help develop empathy through active listening here at Rich in Relationship. Be happy to share those with you if you're interested. So reach out, let us know that you're interested, and we'll share them with you. Okay, so um, when we have these things in place, when we have this kind of intimacy and safety, that is where the ambivalence starts to dissipate. Because in that dialogue of speaking in I statements, of actively listening, in that dialogue, we start to have the opening for clearing out the things that are getting in the way. Well, we have the opportunity, for example, in I statements to talk about things in the past that might be influencing how we feel in the now and helping our partner to understand that. And then when they understand that, they become more sensitive to our strategies and limiting beliefs until we resolve them. In this caring communication, we have the opportunity to take the ambivalence and use it to have a stronger partnership. Or it might be that we find in a very caring way that we're not really supposed to be together. There's a mistake for us to be together. And when that conclusion has come to in a way that's caring, 
it's so much more powerful than when people destroy their marriages with anger, blame, and rage and unhappiness. Uh, in a lot of the work that I do with people who are in the divorce process, it's focused on helping them get off the anger and the blame so that they can focus on what's really important, which is their children. What's really important is that they feel safe in their experience of divorce and that they are forgiving the other person for whatever it is that, that they've done because resentment and anger is like consuming rat poison and hoping that the rat dies, you know, when the only person it hurts is you. Okay, so listen, I'm super grateful for your time and sharing in this journey. And I would love to hear your questions about this. I'd like to hear your thoughts. I'd like to hear what's missing for you in this, right? If something's missing, let me know so that we can add to it. I, actually, I'd love for you to share this with your friends and I'd love for you to subscribe. And, you know, next episode, we're going to talk about the toll of ambivalence. Like, what does ambivalence do when it's repressed or unexpressed? And what I want is for you to really understand that when we have ambivalence and we don't air it out, it's incredibly destructive. Until next episode, this is Rich Heller signing off at Rich in Relationship.